you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And also have your uh, Trinity hymnals handy and maybe open to page 845, the Apostles' Creed as well. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him again in prayer and ask for His blessing. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, you alone are holy. You are our refuge. We will trust in you. You are a tower, almighty fortress. You are our strength and shield. You are God. Indeed, Father, would you be pleased to grow us in our understanding of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you have promised to do for your people. Father, be pleased now to open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of us. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here we are at number three in the series. Christian, what do you believe? An exposition of the Apostles' Creed. One of the challenges is to, to figure out what to preach. As you know, we most often regularly preach through books of the Bible, through letters. Uh, it's appropriate, of course, to be sensitive to, to what's going around us, but all of God's Word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And so you really can't go wrong. All of God's Word for all of God's people. And yet, um, I thought it was important for us to spend some time using something like the Apostles' Creed, which summarizes and organizes uh, the main tenets of the Christian faith. It, it'll serve as a launching point into various biblical passages that brings it together. And, and why this series? Why now? It's because we're living in a time that there is widespread ignorance and confusion as to what is Christianity, what is the Christian faith. And yet, by its very name, we understand that at the very center of Christianity is Jesus Christ. And that's one of the reasons we went through the Gospel of Mark to answer the question, who is Jesus? And then we followed that by going through the letter to the Galatians. What is the Gospel? So here we are looking at what is the Christian faith? Jesus is at the center. And it's built around the Gospel. And here we see this faith expressed by the Apostles' Creed. So the question is, what is the Christian faith? But more personally, the question is this, Christian, what do you believe? I'm getting ready, I think, to reprint the Grace and Peace postcard. Yes, we'll keep some that say, to be human is to worship who or what are you worshiping. We might have another version that says, to be human is to believe who or what are you believing. Indeed, the very word creed comes from Latin, I believe. The Apostles' Creed starts off with credo, I believe. 
Now, as we get into this series, I want to continue to remind ourselves about something. Uh, some of us, even today, may be thinking, isn't reciting a creed just a tradition without any real meaning? Well, that, that may be the case if, if there are those who, who recite and read and speak the creed, but they do not believe what they are saying, if they're somehow just going through the motions, their, their mouth is moving, but their heart remains still. Jesus and Isaiah capture it well when they say these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If you really do believe what you are saying, then participating in a corporate confession of faith, such as the Apostles' Creed, is a tremendous means of strengthening your faith. Why? Because it serves to focus our thoughts on the true nature of God and His gospel that are made known in the Scriptures. And that's why often when we introduce our corporate confession of faith toward the end of our service, we make some comment about the fact that this confession of faith will come in real handy on a Monday when something unexpected happens, on a Tuesday afternoon when a new difficulty arises, on a Thursday at lunchtime when someone is challenging you, calling you a fool for what you believe, what you stand for. My friends, a confession of faith such as the Apostles' Creed can be a tremendous aid in strengthening your faith and my faith. Creeds serve to remind us of what we already know. Years ago at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, the head of the Reformed University Fellowship campus ministry came to speak. And I remember in his message at chapel, he had an interesting definition of a sermon. Not so much proclamation of new information, which is absolutely true, but also a reminder of what we already know. Because you see, if you're like me, you forget. And you need a reminder. And that's why the, the rhythm of weekly wor worship is so important. Because by the end of the week, life in a sinful and fallen world tends to beat us down. And here's the Lord providing food and rest for His people through the ordinary means of grace. Now back to the familiar expressions. No creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. Now those appear to be reasonable statements, don't they? But further reflection leads us to ask questions such as, what do you believe about Jesus? And what do you believe the Bible teaches about sin and death and forgiveness and who Jesus is, and who the Holy Spirit is. Creeds and confessions, while subordinate to and under the authority of the Bible, are vitally important as they help us to understand what we believe the Bible teaches about any number of things. Now for the past two weeks, we've looked at the need for a common creed, and last week we looked at just two words. Two weeks ago, we looked at the history, the structure and content of the creed. The creed organizes and summarizes uh, the Christian faith, as it were, and the use. And we saw that the Apostles' Creed serves to help keep the church faithful to the faith by keeping the church anchored in the harbor of God's Word. 
Now, to the degree that the creed accurately and faithfully summarizes and organizes the teachings of Scripture, creeds serve to anchor the church, to prevent the church from drifting out to sea, or to prevent the church from drifting and hitting the rocks and running aground. We saw that there are tremendous benefits to the Apostles' Creed. We saw where the Apostles' Creed promotes humility. In other words, we're not the first to get this. We are in a long train of people before us and after us whom God has called and rescued and is changing. It keeps us humble. It serves to commend the faith. It helps us to remind ourselves and others what is the truth of God's Word. It helps us to defend the faith against all assaults, both foreign from the outside and domestic from the inside. And finally, the creed helps to promote the unity of the church. Because even though we're saying, I believe, we're saying it together. And it's a chorus and it's a sympathy symphony of I believes. I believe. Doesn't mean faith in faith, but rather faith in the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints as we read in Jude. I believe. Two simple words, but words that are life-changing and life-shaping. They really do make the difference between life and death. Do you believe in God? I believe in God. Doesn't everyone? Now, have you ever asked that question and heard that response to someone? Do you believe in God? And their response is, of course I believe in God. Doesn't everyone believe in God? I mean, there are really very few atheists. And I think um, R.C. Sproul at Ligonier Ministries, the late R.C. Sproul, may even have a a book or a, a talk called Does God Believe in Atheist? Uh, there are very few people that don't believe in some kind of God, as we will see. Jonathan Edwards, the well-known American pastor and probably greatest theologian who served in the 1700s in Massachusetts, he uh, was concerned and prayed and talked about the need for revival in his hometown. A church member, it is told, came up to him after one Sunday service and questioned him and said, surely everyone believes in God already. Well, Edwards responds like this, yes, but what kind of God do they believe in? When I show them the God of the Bible, they say, no. I don't believe in that God. I believe in one more to my liking. That church member was pretty direct, right? Pretty honest. If you're calling and preaching this God of the Bible, that's not the, that's not the God I want. That's not the God I want to worship and follow. And my friends, that's the 1700s in Massachusetts. That's 2015, excuse me, 2018 here in northern Kentucky in greater Cincinnati. It was true also in 2015 as well. The God who has revealed himself both in his world and in his word as we saw this summer in Psalm 19. He is God. 
So for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack and explore the opening words of the Apostles' Creed. The creed has to start somewhere, right? It has to start somewhere, and it begins with the declaration, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Join me now as I read verses 22 through 31 uh, in Acts chapter 17. Actually, we'll start with verse 16. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, finds himself in Athens, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection." And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul proclaims the true and living God to people who were content to worship an unknown God. Well, the outline is a fairly simple one today. God, the Father, Almighty. 
First, I believe in God. When we say I believe in God, we are professing faith in the God of the creed itself, the Christian God, the God of the Bible, the sovereign creator whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If this is not the God in whom we believe, we really have no business saying the creed at all. Let's take a moment to think about idols versus the one true God. Now, in the Bible, the great divide is between those who believe in the Christian God and those who believe in and serve idols. Idols, images, whether material or mental, that do not square with the self-disclosure of God. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 10, 10, we read this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. God's people Israel were wandering off into idolatry and they needed to often be reminded who the one true and living God was. And that is strong language. But the Lord is the true God. Yahweh, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. The God who made himself known to Moses as the great I Am. In 1 Thessalonians 1, we read this as Paul writes a letter to churches that he had served. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Conversion is often likened rightly in turning from the false and turning to the true. Here it's from idols to the living and true God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, in speaking about food, sacrifice to idols, in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, we read this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Idolatry wasn't just something amongst God's people in the Old Covenant. No, as the gospel went out into the Gentile world, it confronted idolatry. And yet the the one true and living God made himself known. So when you affirm, I believe in God, ask yourself, in what God are you expressing belief, faith, and trust? I mean, for me, it rolls off my lips, I believe in God. But it's worth stopping and asking yourself, what kind of God are you believing in? Is it a God of your own imagination? A God of your own making? A God the way you wished He would be? To be sure, we all are faced with that at times. But is it the God who has made Himself known in His world, in creation, in His Word, His written Word, in His Word in the flesh? So ask yourself, where do you get your understanding of the God of the creed? I believe in God. Where do you get your understanding? 
Well, they, uh, as you see, the Apostles' Creed doesn't just say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Yes, it does say that. But it doesn't just only say that. It goes on to further speak of God, the Father. It will go on to speak of Jesus, the Son. It will go on to speak of the Holy Spirit. So let's now take a few moments to consider I believe in God the Father. Now in using this expression, God the Father, we are given at least three wonderful biblical truths that we can spend a lifetime thinking about and relying upon. First, God is Trinity. God is three in one. He is a Trinitarian Father. When the Creed speaks of God the Father, it is reminding us of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is a Trinitarian fatherhood in God. He's not just Father by virtue of His creation of us and the world. He is eternally the Father because of His eternal Son. And we do not have much time at all to even go into the depths of this. But it's everywhere. that The doctrine of the Trinity is not imposed on Scripture. It comes from Scripture. That there is one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and when you assert, I believe in God, the one God, but you also believe in God the Father, you're, you're beginning to build the doctrine of the Trinity there. The unity the diversity, the three in one, the one in three. Remember, Jesus earlier in John 14 was talking uh, to his disciples about uh, knowing me and knowing the Father. Well, earlier in John, he was in a discussion with some of the religious leaders. And we read in John 5, verse 18, this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here, within the eternal trinity, there's this family relation already we're seeing of father and of son. And it's in that relation that God's love is expressed. Now, you may be saying, oh great, uh, what good is it to know that God is Trinity. Well, those of you that have been around know that every Trinity Sunday, every June something or other, we'll put some information in uh, the bulletin about the Trinity. And one observation made by Sinclair Ferguson is this, that when Jesus was about to depart from the disciples, when he was about to be crucified, he spent an awful lot of time instructing them on the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the coming Holy Spirit. Because the disciples were about to have their world crash in on them. And what does Jesus do? He teaches them about the triune God. My friends, the Trinity is not an academic doctrine. It is for us salvation planned by the Father, salvation accomplished by the Son, salvation applied by the Spirit. Second, not only is God Trinity, but we see God is Creator. More on that next week. He is a creational Father. 
One of our call to worships is often Psalm 100. And with good reason. The middle verse, verse 3, says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We are not God. God is God. We have been created by God. He is Father to us. He is the Creator and we are accountable to Him. Just as human sons are accountable to their human fathers. So also God's children are accountable to Him. Malachi the prophet says this, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? A reminder that not a universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man in this case, but no, those who are in the covenant, God is Father. So why? Why are we hurting one another? We have one Father. He has created us. Why are we faithless to one another? God, as Trinity, God is Creator. It, it really does affect how we live with one another. And third, God is Redeemer. He is a redemptive Father. When the creed speaks of God the Father, it is reminding us of the grace relationship that we have with Him through Jesus Christ. Remember Ephesians 3, excuse me, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. As Rob already said, in Him He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us as the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So we see in saying, I believe in God the Father, we see already God is Trinity, God is Creator, God is Redeemer. But we also need to think about Jesus' Father and our Father. If you haven't done so lately, I encourage you to read through the Gospel of John. It is an amazing to see how Jesus speaks of His relationship with His Father. Now the word Father is mentioned a few times in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with His people. He, as a Father. Uh, we see it in uh, um, how He is a Father to the fatherless as well. But it's Jesus who brings this Father into center stage, as it were. He teaches His disciples how to pray and He starts off to say, our Father, our Father. In Colossians, at the beginning of Colossians, we read this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace, always good words to use, ready, from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Right there is an acknowledgement. God is our Father. 
And God is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mysterious, hard to understand, sure, but affirmed there and elsewhere. J.I. Packer says this, quote, When the Christian says the first clause of the creed, he puts all this together and confesses his Creator as both the Father of his Savior and his own Father through Christ. A Father who now loves him no less than he loves his only begotten Son. That is a marvelous confession to be able to make. Let's run by that again. I believe in God the Father. This should stop us in our tracks. God is our Father? Love so amazing, so divine. God is our Father. Indeed, sometimes at the end of the service, in our hymn of blessing, we sing the Gloria Patre, right? The Gloria Patre. Glory be to God, right? It's a fitting way, a wonderful way to get to the end of the service by singing glory be to the Father. Now, the Apostles' Creed does not stop with God the Father, but it goes on with another word to describe God. That one word is, of course, Almighty. Many words could have been chosen. Um, I believe in God the Father, holy. I believe in God the Father, compassionate. I believe in God the Father, gracious. I believe in God the Father, merciful. No, the Creed is, I believe in God the Father, almighty. We've seen God is Trinity, God is Creator, God is Redeemer, and now we see God is Sovereign. God is Almighty. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's the one who sovereignly reigns over His role, over His world. Think with me for a moment about the sovereignty of God. Sadly, when people begin to discuss the sovereignty of God with one another, oftentimes it is a theme of controversy. Well, God is sovereign. No, He's not. God is. Yet, no, He's not. I'll prove it. It is controversial. Can you believe it? But in Scripture, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a matter of worship. God is sovereign. As we sang at the beginning, O Father, You are sovereign. A great hymn of praise, of worship. So when you initially hear that God is almighty, are you afraid? Or do you rather worship? The sovereignty of God. There's four things we need to know when we're thinking about First of all, remember, uh, sovereignty does mean, at times, what God cannot do. There are things that God cannot do. The children's catechism, the, the first catechism, asks this question, can God do all things? And it answers, yes, God can do all His holy will. God cannot change. He cannot lie. He cannot do evil. So remember, when thinking about God's sovereignty, 
There are things he cannot do. He cannot go against who he has revealed himself to be. Secondly, think about human free will. Well, it's, it's really human free agency, what we're capable of doing. God's sovereignty enables you and me to make decisions that have consequences. God is the first and ultimate cause, but He in His wisdom and sovereignty lets His people act according to their nature and make decisions as well. But we also have to think in terms of God's sovereignty is evil is mastered. God's sovereignty is not undermined by the problem of evil. And we've been looking at that for the last few weeks in our Sunday school class on suffering and sovereignty. And finally, number four, the sovereignty of God is good news. It is the ground of our hope and comfort in a fallen world. If you haven't already done so, read the introductory article from this month's Table Talk. What a great title. Out of and under control. God's sovereignty, that God is almighty, shows us, reminds us that God has it under control. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That whole answer has to do with God's sovereign care for those who trust Jesus. Since you've got your Trinity hymnal, turn with me to hymn 111. Hymn 111. Since we are looking at, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, we could have sung, this is my Father's world. And verse 3 goes like this, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. What an affirmation of God's sovereignty. And that affirmation brings comfort. I believe in God the Father Almighty. So let's wrap up by going back briefly to four benefits of the Apostles' Creed and how we can apply this statement through that grid. Remember, the Apostles' Creed promotes personal humility. It promotes humility. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And you could say, you're saying, I believe that I am not God the Father Almighty. You go back to the fall of man into sin. I want to be God. It's there from the very beginning, but this humbles us. This is Psalm 100 verse 3. He made us and not we ourselves. And yet we live and breathe in a world that says, no, no, no. We made ourselves. So it promotes personal humility. It also serves to commend the faith and to ourselves and to others. It's ongoing proclamation. Think with me. You, you say this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. What a, great, what a great way to ask somebody that you're wanting to share Christ with. Uh, do you believe in God? Do you believe that God is, and use language, you know, is he like a father? Do you believe God is almighty and powerful and in control? It's a great way to commend the faith. And it's a way to commend it to ourselves. 
When this world feels like it's going out of control, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Secondly, it, it, or thirdly, it serves to defend the faith against all enemies, foreign, outside of us, domestic, inside of us. Think about it. God is not in control. Well, yes, He is. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Well, yeah, because that expression represents a whole lot of scriptural truth. It's a summary. It's an organization. It's a, it's a springboard into the scriptures. And finally, it promotes church unity because we, this is what we believe together. You know, this church has endured difficult times in the past. It will endure difficult times in the future. But think about it together. We say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Father who loves this church, who sent His Son for this church, who, who uh, sent the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within the members of this church. What a great affirmation. But for some of you here today, thinking of God as Father may not be encouraging. It may rather be difficult, if not impossible, for you to say, as you're saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, you might also be thinking, and I had a terrible father. There's a hymn writer in the Trinity Hymnal, Henry Light. He wrote three hymns that are in our hymnal. Uh, he lived in the 1800s, and by his own admission in his writings, he said he had a terrible father. His parents split up. He was sent to a boarding school. His, his father remarried. And from there on out, Henry's father wouldn't allow him to call him father. And when Henry's father wrote him a letter at boarding school, he signed it, your uncle. We may laugh, but how would you like to be disowned by your earthly father like that? Terribly hurt. But you know what? The fatherhood of God became a great source of comfort for Henry. In his hymns, he addressed God as his loving father. Turn with me, finally, to hymn 76. Hymn 76. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, coming from Psalm 103. Verse 3, Father-like He tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame He knows. In His hands He gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, widely as His mercy goes. My friends, the gospel was able to rewrite the story of Henry Light. Rather than his life being defined by having an awful earthly father, his life was determined by a wonderful and loving heavenly father, God the Father Almighty. So let me ask you all this as we close. How about you? In whom is your identity found? I believe in God the Father Almighty. To be sure, we're going to unpack that more and more. 
Is your is God this mighty God, this 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 Father? Is He your Father through faith in Jesus? May God be pleased to use the Apostles' Creed to reaffirm this most basic of biblical truths. The one true and living God is our Father through faith in Christ, and He is almighty over all. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we are among the people that are privileged to not just say, not just recite, but to confess, to profess, to believe what we say when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Oh, Father, may that be a great source of comfort to us in these troubling days, knowing that you are almighty over all. Father, enable us to humble ourselves before you, knowing that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. That we trust that you will exalt us at the proper time. Until then, Father, help us to keep walking by faith and not by sight. Help us to keep trusting in Jesus in whom we can indeed call you Father. For we pray in his name. Amen.